Amen. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the text that we're going to look at today, we're going to uh, be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, in a, a new sermon series that I'm starting today uh, on 1 Corinthians. And my goal is uh, to preach the entirety of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, uh, you know I just said something that is, um, that's kind of interesting, right? I'm going to preach the entirety of 1 Corinthians. Uh, that's 16 chapters long. And it's not just 16 chapters, it's 16 dense chapters. And what that means is that I'm not going to be preaching a chapter a week, right, uh, in order to do it in 16 weeks. I have to break this up into smaller portions in order to do it. Now, what I have done in laying this out is I think, um, you know, and I'll, I'll wait for the Lord to see what he has in mind as we go through this, but I think it's going to be about 44 sermons uh, in 1 Corinthians. That's a, that's a lot of sermons. Um, and now I'm going to break it up a little because I, I realize that uh, um, I realize our attention spans, right? So I'm going to break it up. And so we have a mission conference. We'll do something else. Summer, I'll do something else. Thanksgiving, I'll do a Thanksgiving sermon. Christmas, I'll do it. And then get to the next year, we'll do a few other different things. So, so we're going to be, though, coming back to 1 Corinthians and digging into 1 Corinthians for a year and a half. A year and a half. So um, there, Mike Campbell just made a commitment to Old Cutler. I, unless the Lord takes me to heaven, a year and a half, we'll, we'll still be going here at Old Cutler. If you guys don't ask me to leave, I don't say anything stupid. Now, the, the question that I think we need to then begin to ask ourselves is, okay, why? Uh, why 1 Corinthians? Why 1 Corinthians now? And why am I going to spend this kind of time in this particular book? Well, I think there's two reasons for it, and, and this is a matter of introduction. I'm going to say a few things introductory but before we get into the reading of the text. The, the, the two reasons that, that I'm going to spend the amount of time that I'm going to spend with you in 1 Corinthians has to do with the city of Corinth and the church in Corinth. Those two things, the city of Corinth and the church in Corinth. The city of Corinth, let's start with that. The city of Corinth, uh, as you may know, if you've ever heard sermons on this or read uh, commentaries on 1 Corinthians, it was a city not unlike many of our modern-day cities. And it was an ancient city, and, but so there's, there's differences, of course. But Corinth was a, a city that was, it was large, it was significant, influential, wealthy, highly competitive, ethnically and religiously diverse, pleasure-driven, and sexually immoral. Does that sound like any city you know? <laughs> Sounds like a lot. I mean, you, you, you think of Corinth, I mean, it's, it's not that dissimilar from you know, Miami or New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. It's not that different than, than Western cities in our nation and in the world. So that's the city. But it's not just the city. It's not just the city that's the reason for me doing this series. It's also the church, because of what was happening with the church in that city. Because what was going on in that church is it was experiencing what some have described as, and I think this is a good way of looking at this, cultural squeeze. Or to say it another way, it was being squeezed into the mold of the culture around it. It was being, being compromised in his commitment to, to the Lord and to truth. And all of that was happening because of all that was going on. So the church in Corinth was starting to look a lot like Corinth. 
the thinking of believers in Corinth was being shaped a lot by Corinth itself. And so Paul writes to this church to challenge them about that, right? I've entitled this series, Living as God's People. That's the name of the series, Living as God's People. And the reason for that name is because that is actually what Paul is calling them to do, to live as God's people, which is what I'm calling us, O Cutler, to do through this series, to live as God's people. And so over the course of this time together that we're in this series, we're going to be confronting um, all kinds of things and all kinds of issues that Paul had to deal with uh, because these were issues in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, because they were embracing these things from the culture around them. And you and I, we can be guilty of this. I would imagine it is true for me to say that for some of us, we are guilty of this. And so we need to hear the word, and we need to consider what Paul and what God actually says to us. Now, today we're just looking at the opening greeting. And, you know, Paul, Paul in these opening greetings, and you probably know this too, but I'm just going to say it by way of introduction so all of us are on the same page together. Paul's writing a letter here, right? And this letter has a, a standard sort of letter writing style for the first century world, just like we have standard letter writing styles today, right? We'll write a letter and we'll go, dear, and then that's the, the person we're, we're sending the letter to. At the end of the letter, we'll write our name sincerely, and then we write our name. In the first century world, letters were typically written this way. You have the writer of the letter, and that's actually what we see in verse 1. Then you see the recipients of the letter, and that's what you see in verse 2. And then there's some kind of greeting, and then you see the body of the letter. Paul's using that standard format, but what Paul does is he, he, he fills it out with theology, and that's, that's Paul for you. I mean, everything he says is full and rich of theology, and certainly this greeting is as well. And it is to the extent that it, it serves almost as a preface or an introduction to the, the letter. It, it, it has so much information in it that it sort of sets the tone. In other words, when you, when you get the, the opening greeting, you are getting the tone of the things that he is going to go on to say. Uh, it's similar to, you know, our, in our tradition, we have something called the Book of Church Order. Now, those of you that aren't, that aren't familiar with this and don't know this, that's okay. That's okay. Um, but I'm going to make a point out of it. You know, I'm not one of those, like those of you who know about the Book of Church Order, it's a, it's a big blue book. And it's a part of our Constitution. And the, and the Book of Church Order basically helps us to kind of understand how we are to do things in the church. And so it's very practical. I think a way of thinking about it is it's sanctified wisdom. It's, 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 it's biblical wisdom sort of brought down in the practical format. So it tells us about our government. It tells us about discipline. It tells us about worship and all of those kinds of things. Very, very practical. But it starts with a preface. And that preface is all theology. And it is rich and deep about the church. And it sets the tone for the rest that's what Paul is doing in these three verses. He's setting the tone. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So let's look at the text. That was a long introduction, right? <laughs> you guys are in trouble with this sermon. No, it won't be that long. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's word. May the Lord bless it to our reading, our hearing, 
or understanding this morning. When I was in seminary, um, there was a professor of mine, and in one class, and I don't remember the reason why he said this, uh, I remember what he said, and it stuck with me this whole time, but I don't remember why he said it. But what he, he did, he got in a conversation in the class about his own academic journey, and he told us that he had, had gone to um, an elite um, um, Ivy League school in America, up in the Northeast, and he had studied... It was Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern studies, Hebrew, all those kind of things at this school. And he went on to talk about, you know, the rigors of the program. But the reason he told us this is because he, he started to talk about the challenges that he faced and how difficult it was to be a believer in the word and a believer in Jesus Christ to, to face the onslaught of things that he experienced going through that PhD program in this Ivy League school and all the things that came against them and all the challenges and all of the opposition. But then he said, um, as he was, he was struggling through all of that and facing all of that, 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 um, that opposition, he, he came to a point where he was like, there was, and he said this to us, there was, there was one reason, there was one reason why I held firmly to the Christian faith. And it surprised me what he said. And, and the reason it surprised me is it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought he was going to say, the reason I held firmly to the Christian faith is because I held to, and I, I thought he's first going to say the doctrine of Scripture. In other words, he understood what Scripture is. And he understood the inspiration of Scripture, that it's God-breathed and the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, which are incredibly important things. That we know that the Word of God is the Word of God because its origin is the God of truth. And we know it's truth because God is truth. Okay? So that's, that's one thing, and that's an important thing. In fact, we're doing a study on that on Wednesday nights, which I'd encourage you to come to and consider why we believe the Bible, which we're talking about on Wednesday nights. But that's not what he said. Then I thought, okay, he maybe he's going to say, because I was like, what is this guy? Because he held up, and I was like, he didn't say it at first. I thought it was going to be apologetics, which is the defense of the faith, which is also really important because it, it gives us the ability to, to think about what the attacks are and what the Bible actually says in response to the attacks. But he didn't say that either. You know what he said? He said, the reason in the midst of the onset of all of those things, all of those attacks against my faith, the reason I didn't give up was because of Jesus. That's what he said. Because of Jesus. And then he went on to say, because there is no one like Jesus. And no one can do what Jesus can do. And no one has done for me what Jesus has done for me. It's Jesus. You can't abandon him when you really know who he is and what he's done. Now, I'm going to ask a question at the beginning. I'm going to ask a question at the end. So the question I'm going to ask you at the beginning is just simply this question. Is that true for you today? Could, could, you, could you say today, and I want us, you know, as we make our way through this, this sermon series, I, I, I really want us to, to think about ourselves in the midst of this and to individually really process some of these things and to consider where we are. And, and as we start, I want to just ask the question, could you say that, that the reason why you do not budge, you are not being pushed, you will not give up, you will stand strong, is because there's no one like Jesus, there's no one who has done 
for you nor can do for you what Jesus has done or can do. Now, the reason I mention this as we begin this series is because one of the things that Paul does, and it's not just in 1 Corinthians, it's in all of his letters. I mean, Paul, sometimes people call Paul the apostle of grace or the apostle of liberty. But, but really, I think when you all do get down to all the things that Paul does, what Paul basically is, is an apostle of in Christness. That we are in Christ. And over and over again, what he focuses on is all that God has done for us in Jesus. You know, even these three opening verses, I mean, you just think about how he just circles around to talk about Christ. He's like all over these three verses. I mean, look at verse 1. He's a possible Christ Jesus. Verse 2, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The second part of verse 2, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And Paul is constantly talking about that. And he's saying to the Corinthians, listen, and this is similar to my, my professor. He's saying, look, if you're going to stand strong against the world, then what you need to know, and what you need to understand, and what you need to believe is all that God has done and is doing for you in Jesus. And in these three verses, he wants us to see, I think, three things. And the first of these is, is what I would describe as God's initiative in Christ. God's initiative in Christ. Now, by the word initiative, all I'm talking about is this is how it, all, this is how it begins. This is how it happens, right? It's, it's all really about what, what God is doing in our lives. It's about his sovereign grace. It's about his purposes. It's about the way God is working. Yesterday in the new member class, we, you know, we, we did a lot of stuff in that one new member class, but one of the sections was, of course, on theology and distinctives of the Reformed faith. And one of those distinctives is sovereign grace. It is that it's all of God. It's all of his grace. It's not of us. It's not our will. It's not our desire. It's not. It's God. It's what God is doing. God is at work. And if you are here today proclaiming the name of Jesus, it is because God has worked. Now, note what Paul says in verse 1, because this is the, all right, this is basically Paul saying, here's who's writing the letter. But he doesn't just say Paul, or Paul, your friend. In verse 1, he says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So, most scholars in looking at this, because he says Paul, an apostle, most scholars, most commentaries in look at it, focus on the, the, the sense of authority. And this is something important, and I'm going to mention this before I go on to what I think this is also saying. Paul is saying he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. This isn't little a apostle, which is just the word that means sent. This is big A apostle. This is Paul claiming authority. He is sent with the authority of God to the church. That's what he's saying. With the authority of Christ to the church. He is sent. He is an apostle of the church, like Peter, right? Many people today use that language, and there are churches out there that talk about where men will call themselves apostles. They are not. They are not. 
especially the way they're thinking about it with big A apostle, that's not what they are. They may be little A apostle, you're a little A apostle, I'm a little A apostle, we're all sent, but we're not big A apostles. Paul is. And one of the reasons Paul says this, that that's just who he is, is because the churches oftentimes, in response to Paul, were basically denying or undermining or rejecting his authority. And so he is reminding them of that. He is an apostle. It's the reason why we believe the word. Because he's sanctioned by it, authorized by God in Christ to do this. But here's the part of this I want you to think about a little bit more today. Is this, that he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so I want you to think about the fact that Paul, Paul is an apostle of Jesus. And just give a little consideration to the fact that, man, that didn't seem to be his agenda in life, did it? When Paul was going to, let's say, Jewish high school, and he went into the guidance counselor, and he, the guidance counselor spent some time with Paul and looked at all of his abilities. The guidance counselor didn't say, Paul, you know what? I have a great plan for your life. You need to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. That wasn't it in any kind of way. Paul had no interest in this, no desire for this. In fact, Paul, in this text, tells us he was sent, right? He's a sent one from Jesus. But remember when we are introduced to Paul in the book of Acts. Remember that story. Remember he was sent, but he was sent by the high priest. And he was being sent as Saul to Damascus. And he was being sent to do what? To arrest believers in Jesus. And to put them in chains. And to bring them back to Jerusalem. And to imprison them. And most likely torture them and for some probably put them to death. Paul's goal in life, Paul's game plan for life was actually in opposition. Even though he thought, there, he, thought he was doing this for God, he wasn't. This was, Paul was compelled by his own, own sinful, rebellious self and he was seeking to destroy God's church. That was Saul. Now we have to ask, okay, how does, how does that Saul then become Paul? How does Saul, the one sent to destroy the church, become Paul, the apostle of the church? How does he become that? Well, Paul says it, by the will of God. You remember the story? You remember what happened as he was heading to Damascus and Jesus, the resurrected Lord, speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It was all of God. Paul was belonged now to the Lord. He was on the path he was on because of God, because of his initiation, because of his choosing, because of his working. And that wasn't just true of Paul, and it's not just true of Paul in this text. It's interesting that he goes on to say, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, that's an interesting name, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes probably was a scribe or secretary, he maybe dictated the letter. Uh, some, some commentators point out that it could be that he not only dictated, maybe he wrote some of it, because if you notice, you'll see this as we go through 1 Corinthians. First, first chapter is mainly first person, Paul saying I. Second chapter does some we, second person. So maybe Sosthenes helped him write it. But that's really not the question. The question is, who in the world is this guy? And why, why does Paul include him here without introduction? Because I don't know about you, but that's not a very familiar name right? Sosthenes. It's not like Timothy 
or Silas or Matthew, all those other names that we know so well, why does he even mention Sosthenes? Well, there's a reason that he doesn't have to introduce him. It's because the Corinthians already know him. They already know him. Now, this takes us back to the planning of the church in Acts 18. And in Acts 18, in the planning of that church, you may remember, Greg read part of it. What happened? So Paul goes into, into Corinth. Lee's Athens goes into Corinth. And he starts to preach the word, right? And he does what is his normal pattern, which is the first going to the Jewish synagogue. Because to the, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, he came for the Jews and they rejected him. And then he goes to the Gentiles. So he goes into the Jewish synagogue and he preaches and what Acts 18 says, and, and, and I don't know, that, that passage Greg read is a profoundly important passage. It says some things that really are amazing, and I'm going to emphasize them a little bit with you. It says that what Paul did in the synagogue is he preached that the Christ was Jesus. That's what he preached. In other words, he goes into the synagogue, and what he tells the Jews is this. Christ is your Messiah. And they went nuts. They opposed him. They reviled him. And Paul goes out and he shakes off his garments, it says. And he tells them, your blood is on your own hands. I am innocent. And he walks down the street to a house of a god fear a Gentile, and his name is Titius Justice, and he starts preaching, and people start believing. I mean, something happens in Corinth. In fact, the, 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 the tone of that text is, is not only was Corinth a large city, I believe the church in Corinth was large. People were coming to Jesus like crazy. In fact, the ruler of the synagogue that he had just gotten kicked out of becomes a Christ follower. Crispus. Now, if you just think about this for a moment, I mean, you talk about a way to not make friends and to get people like really, really upset with you. You go into a place, you preach, they throw you out, but then the leader of the thing follows you. That's what happens here, right? And so as a result of that, the leaders of the synagogue, what they do is they're like, I'm going to bring charges against and so they bring charges against Paul before the Roman authorities, before a man by the name of Gallio, who is the proconsul. And the proconsul is basically a ruler of, a, of an area, of a region in which Corinth was a part of. And so they bring charges. And the, and the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, they come before him and they present their case. And they, it, it, it seems like the way they present it, they make it all about the law of God. Paul being opposed to the law, and the Roman proconsul who has no interest in this, he is summarily throws it out. Paul doesn't even have to defend himself. He's about ready to defend himself, and the proconsul just throws the whole thing out, right? I don't want to deal with this, he says. Your law, your rules, you guys talk about it. I'm not dealing with this. Okay. Now, What's probably clear is this. There's a guy that was presenting the case. And he was the new ruler of the synagogue. 
because Crispus had already become a Christ follower. And there was a new ruler. And guess what his name was? Sosthenes. And he presented the case. And evidently, they didn't like the way he presented the case. Because after Gallio kicked them out, here's what it says in verse 17. This is Acts chapter 18, verse 17. And they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. It's kind of like, he's like, these folks, psh, just walked off, right? But now think about this for a moment. The first synagogue ruler, he left and became a Christ follower. The second synagogue ruler, Sosthenes, he tries to bring charges against Paul, is unsuccessful at it. And this man gets beat up for the, for the effort. And so now, here's what we have, all right? We have Sosthenes, the beat-down synagogue leader, and we have Sosthenes, our brother. What happened in between? I don't know the details, but I know the answer. By the will of God, he called Sosthenes to himself. Now, reason I know this is because something is said earlier that really grabbed my attention. And, and I don't think, I don't know if you read this or not. I think Greg read this. If you look back up at verse 9 and 10, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. So this is Jesus speaking to Paul. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. He's saying to him, don't stop. Keep going. Keep preaching, right? Don't be afraid. You hear this, Christians? Don't be afraid. Keep going. Keep preaching. Keep living for him. Then he says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And then he says, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're looking at that and you think this is what it means, that Jesus is coming to him and saying, listen, Paul, you don't have to be afraid because a lot of people of power have come to know me and they're going to protect you. You are reading this wrongly. What he's saying is this. He's saying, I'm going to protect you. And part of the reason I'm going to protect you is because you have a job to do. And that job is to keep on preaching. Because in this city, I have many of my people. Now, here's the thing. The many of my people he's talking about, a lot of them, except those who had already come, they don't even know they're his people. But they are. Why? Because from the foundation of the world, this is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, God chose them. They're his. And in time, God will call them and then redeem them by the blood of Jesus. Give to them the gift of faith so that they will know what they did not know before. That they are the people of God. I mean, think about it like this. There are people walking all around us. And maybe there are people in, in your home even now. And they don't know this. They don't know there are people of God. They don't know they're a part of the people of God. But they are. 
They are. It just hasn't gotten to this moment where God has brought about the reality of his will in the lives of people to bring them to faith in himself. But it is going to happen. And this is the reason why. I mean, if you notice in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, when Paul then turns to then, then say who he's writing to, he says to the church of God that is in Corinth. Notice he calls it the church of God. The church of God. Think about today. How often you hear ministers speak of churches as my church? Is it really? Is this my church? It is the church of God. It is the church by his will. He is building. It is his. You belong to him. This is the point. It's not your will. It's not your desire. It may not be your purpose. It may not be in any way in your mind. But when God Almighty that has this eternal plan of grabbing and capturing the people, when he is at work, you will be his. This means this. You don't belong to this world anymore. And you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. Now, that's God's initiative, right? Two other things I'm going to say real quickly. That initiative brings about a purpose. And this is the second thing, God's purpose in Christ. Now, notice the entirety of verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So, again, the word church, I just want to say something real quickly about that, even though we just talked about it. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. And, and it's, a, it's a, the word that is used in the Greek to translate the Hebrew word for an assembly or a congregation. So one of the ways that we are to think of ourselves as a church is the assemble people of God, the gather people of God. But the word ekklesia is an interesting word because it's actually a combination of two words. The first word is ek, which means out of. The second word is kaleo, which means call which helps us to understand something important about who we are, that we are the church, we are the called out ones. Okay? And put it together. By God's initiation, he calls out a people. Okay? Now, he goes on to say something that is similar to that. When he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, when he says sanctified, he's talking about something that has happened, something that's done. He's not talking about ongoing progressive sanctification, which is usually the way we think of sanctification. He's thinking about what theologians would describe as positional sanctification or definitive sanctification. He's talking about, and, and whenever you read these words, sanctified, sanctification, saint, holy, holiness, all these words, they have the same root, and you know what that root is? To be set apart. Now, what is he saying? He's saying by God's initiative, by God's sovereign grace, not our plan, not our desire in any way, we have become the called out ones, called out of the world and set apart to God. But it's not just that. Because he goes on to say we've been called out, set apart, and then he says called to be saints, called to be something. Now think about that. What we have been set apart to be, sanctified, 
we are called to be in life. You following that? Okay. The set-apart ones are to live as set-apart ones. The sanctified are to be saints. Paul earlier speaks of how he was called by the will of God, nothing else, by the will of God, called to be an apostle. He was called to be a saint as well, but he was called to be an apostle, right? Now what is he saying? He's saying all of the Corinthians, and not just all of the Corinthians, it goes on to say, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, called to be. He said everyone, this point of this is every Christian this is where the Catholic Church has gotten it really wrong when they think the saints are very special holy people. They're off on that, hugely off. Because what Paul is saying here is that every Christian that has ever lived and every Christian that will ever live in every place that any Christian has ever lived, you are set apart to God by his initiative and called to live that way. To live as saints. And there is no choice in this. This is who you are. It's identity that then directs purpose. That he is, and it says it twice here, when it's talking about Jesus. And notice the language. It talks about the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on both their Lord and ours. It's, it's a verse that, that deals with, I think, the unity of the church, which we'll talk about more in future sermons. But I want you to draw your attention to the, the way he speaks of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, their Lord, the Lord, Jesus, the Savior, Yeshua, Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord. The Lord. Your Lord. So here's the second question. Is he? Really, the Lord of your life today? Or do you have others? Is the Lord of your life a social media influencer? Is the Lord of your life a radio talk show host? Is the Lord of your life, a television news commentator? Is the Lord of your life a politician? Is the Lord of your life a preacher? Is the Lord of your life a professor? Is the Lord of your life a philosophy? Is the Lord of your life an idea? Or is the Lord of your life King Jesus? That's what Paul is saying. Who is the Lord? And that means everything. Now, we hear this, and there's a way to respond to it. It's almost like, you know... And I hope you don't receive it this way, and I'm going to show you why you shouldn't. 
That this is all about, okay, we are believers, we are soldiers for the Lord, and that means it's almost kind of like, it it, it may feel like a little bit, we've been drafted into a a military that we don't want to be in, and then we we are sent off to a war that we don't want to fight, and and that the Christian life seems to be like that, and it's having to submit to a a king that maybe you don't want to submit to, and that is no way true. It's not You know, when we talk about the five points of Calvinism, which is a way of sort of thinking about God's sovereign grace and salvation, we talk about a number of different things. We talk about total depravity, which speaks of our inability to to turn to God on our own. We speak of unconditional election, which is really talking about the idea that God has chosen us, not conditioned on us, limited atonement, that's really definite atonement, that he saved those that he has chosen. We talk about irresistible grace, which I'm going to come back to, and then perseverance of the saints, that we will keep on persevering, but irresistible irresistible grace is one of these that is so wonderful and so precious because it's this. It's all about the wondrous sort of grace of God taking hold of a sinful man or woman and changing everything. Giving us new eyes, new hearts, new longings. So that it's not about, oh, I got drafted into God's army. Let me see if I can serve him. It's about God making you and me new. It's about God making you and me saints. And this is how Paul ends. Because he talks about God's wondrous blessing in Christ. And we see that. This is the third point. God's blessing in Christ. And we see it in verse 3. Where Paul says in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What that looks like when you first read it. Because you see it all the time. It looks like conventional uh, letter writing style with a little bit of Christianization to it. Kind of like when you and I end letters oftentimes and say sincerely in Jesus. Or sincerely in the Lord. But it's not that. It's more than that. What Paul is doing here is pronouncing a benediction, and he does it over and over. And you know what a benediction is? It is the blessing of God. Right at the end of the service, what do we do? I put up my hands and I pronounce it. What do you do? You put up your hands, you receive it, because what is it? It is a pronouncement of the blessing of God Almighty upon his people of what is real and true for us Paul is saying to these wayward believers, being conformed to the culture, listen to what is yours, grace and peace. It is ours, Christian. Grace is, it's like the the sum total of all of God's riches towards undeserving sinners because of Jesus. All of his riches, all of his pardon, all of his presence, all of his power, and it's ours in Jesus. Peace is the sum total of really of of all the benefits that are ours because we are recipients of God's grace in Christ. It's, It's the reality of shalom, of wholeness, of well-being. It's, it's peace with God. And so here's what Paul is saying. If you think about all of it, what he's saying is this. Listen, Corinthians. Listen, old Cutler. This is what's happened. 
God, by his and in his purposes alone, have nothing to do with us. God has chosen you. God has called you. God has redeemed you. God has set you apart. And God now wants you to live set apart by the power of his spirit because you now are a very new and different person. Why? Because grace has embraced you and you now have the peace of the Lord. What a wondrous truth that is ours. And now... What he's saying is because all of that is true, let me tell you, over 16 chapters, what it looks like to live it out. And that's what I want all of us to know. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, we praise you, and we, uh, Lord, submit to you. Uh, there are many of us, Lord, who have heard this sermon today, and we, we, we know, Lord, that as we think about these things, we maybe aren't where we should be. I know I'm not where I should be, and I pray that you would help all of us, help me as I dig deep into this book and as I preach it to our people, that you, by your Spirit, would do what only you can do, and that is Make us into who you want us to be, to live the lives that reflect who we are in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be bold and to stand and be your people in the world, the church of the living God. Thank you again, Lord, for all that you have done for us through Christ. And thank you for this congregation. Continue to work in our midst to your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.